Thank you, Patricia, for reading so helpfully. And uh, good morning, everyone. It is great to uh, see everybody. After a two-week break, it's uh, great to be back refreshed and uh, looking forward to spending some time in God's Word with you this morning. Uh, let me add my, you know, happy Mother's Day to those who are here. Uh, but there is another celebration this morning, and I don't always point these things out, but when someone turns 60... You, it's, and it's the day that you're at church, sometimes it's worthwhile. So, so Catherine, happy 60th birthday today. There you go. There you go. I know there are other birthdays today probably too, and you always, uh, you know, always take the risk of missing people, but uh, I just thought I knew Catherine's 60th birthday, so I'd say something this morning. Friends, uh, this is the outline on the back, uh, an outline of the talk this morning, if you want to use that to follow on. Uh, the other thing to say is if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, hopefully you got one as you came in or you brought your own, uh, but you want one, just put your hand in the air and Sandy will certainly come and put one in your hand if you need it. So just put your hand in the air if you want to follow on what we're saying this morning. Well, we've already prayed. Sam's prayed for us. So uh, let's look at this passage together this morning. Uh, I was thinking this week about uh, the book, uh, The God Delusion. Uh, you know, the, the outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins in that book contends that a supernatural creator, God, almost certainly does not exist. And that belief in a personal God qualifies as a delusion. Well, he's, uh, he's not alone in his views. Uh, and what was once called the, called the Christian West, uh, which includes Australia, and gen generally largely have come to believe that we are better off without God. Uh, the evidence is plenty. Uh, if we look around our world, the relentless push to remove uh, scripture from schools uh, and perhaps more generally from the public arena, the eagerness to punish Christians like Israel Folau, for example, who speak of their faith publicly, the fact that our elected leaders are unwilling to defend religious freedom, the willingness to end another person's life, uh, once considered only God's prerogative, but now taken out of his hands by our abortion and euthanasia laws, or even the desecrating of the God-given marriage bond. And the list goes on, doesn't it, really? There's lots of ways in which God has been removed and seeks to be removed from our society. But for all of our godlessness, there isn't a lack of religious zeal and worship within our community. Uh, there's no shortage of activists religiously devoted to some cause, whether that might be uh, climate change or transgenderism or some other identity issue. Perhaps even some so-called woke ideology that seems to cancel uh, some unacceptable fellow citizens from our society. Religious devotion and worship is still present, still very much a, pre a present part of our godless society. And Richard Dawkins claims that we don't need traditional religion to be moral as a society. Uh, but in our better off without God society, uh, are we becoming more moral? Are we a better society? Are we a more thankful and hopeful society, especially about the future? Well, I would say that the evidence suggests not, although I don't have time to go into all the details there. As someone I know was uh, recently being interviewed for a job and one of the questions that they were asked by the employer was, do you take drugs? I thought that was a very strange question to ask someone employed for, uh, being employed for a job. It doesn't suggest that we have a lot of confidence in the morality of our fellow man, does it? But it's one thing for the world generally to reject or ignore or forget God. But what about the church? Where are we in our thinking and attitudes towards God? Because in Isaiah, 
God is speaking to his people, the people of Israel. These are God's people who have turned their back on him, who have sinned against him and each other, who have wandered into idolatry because, well, it, it seems they've lost confidence in God. Perhaps the world and its ways look more attractive. Perhaps they feel they need to try a little self-help instead of putting all their eggs in the God basket. And as we read God's word together this morning, God is speaking to us, the church. Where does our hope lie? Are we joyfully beholding the glory of our good and faithful God? Or is our confidence waning? Are there alternate gods that we are unwittingly putting our hope in? Well, have a a look back. I'm going to start before the passage that we read today. Back in chapter 53 and verse 21, it'll be on the screen there for you, verse 21 and following. Because here, God says that Israel are, notice verse 21, they are the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Yet, verse 22, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. And then down at 24b, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Israel were God's chosen people, his blessed people who were supposed to represent God to the nations, declare God's glory and goodness so that they too could know the true and living God. But Israel are, as I think, as likely to be an effective messenger of God as a block of wood is. I mean, if Israel isn't convinced that the Lord is God, then where does that leave the nations who they're supposed to be witnesses to it to? They didn't trust or obey God. They sinned against him. Even their religious practices, we've seen, made a mockery of God. And so they deserved God's punishment, which is exactly what we've been hearing, what we've seen is about to happen. God was uh, sending them into exile at the hands of uh, the mighty Babylon. Uh, We read there in verse 27 of chapter 43, your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob, another name for Israel, to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. See, God's judgment is rightly coming upon Israel. And yet, as we read on, what we see is that it's not the final word. Because breaking into this kind of seemingly hopeless situation of Israel being defeated and sent into exile as punishment for their sins, God promises forgiveness. He promises restoration. Now look at verse 25 of chapter 43. I, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So they may deserve God's judgment, and yet God is ready and willing to forgive and to restore. And the the assurance of that is in our passage that we've been looking at today. So in verse 6 to 8, if you've got your Bibles there, this is a great time to have it open, uh, because the promise of salvation, of forgiveness of sins and restoration, is because there is a God. There is only one true God. And because of that, nothing can stand in the way of his purposes. Now, that's the message that we kind of get from verses 6 to 8. Let me pick it up there from verse 6 in chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
I've got a book at home with the title, Who Made God? Uh, the atheist asks a foolish question. Um, for God to be made by something or by someone else actually makes him a creature, a lesser being. But he is the first, God tells us. Nothing comes before him. He is the self-existing creator of everything. And he's the last. He's the fulfillment of all, et all eternity. He is God and there is no other. And it's not that God has to prove himself to us as if we have the right to stand in judgment of him and ask him to prove himself. That's absurd. And yet he reminds Israel that the evidence is there. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says to them, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, at, at one level, we might kind of spare a thought for Israel, uh, surrounded by nations, powerful nations, uh, worshipping other so-called gods, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, uh, world powers attributed their success to the power of their gods. And so the evidence appeared to be on their side. In contrast, Israel looked pathetic and weak. But God wants them to remember that everything that has happened to them, he foretold. It actually hasn't happened by chance. He promised to make a great nation, remember, of one man. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, Abraham. He promised it and he did it, the nation of Israel. He promised to bless them greatly if they trusted and obeyed him, and he did it. And he promised also that if they rebelled against him, he would punish them, and he did it. Before, with the, with the nation of Israel, Egypt, and what is happening now, God has told them well ahead of time, Babylon and her gods are not in control. God had warned them that he would, what he would do if they continued to rebel and sin against him. You see, in a sense, here is the uniqueness of the true God. No other so-called God has ever been able to foretell the future of world events and then bring them about as the Christian God has. See, Christianity is not built on wishful thinking. It's not the dreams of some man in a cave written down for us to follow with no evidence. It's not conjured up in the mind of human beings. Our confidence in God is based on overwhelming evidence historically. And so he says to Israel, you are my witnesses. You know the truth. You know I keep my promises. And I have promised to forgive you, to restore you, and to transform you. So do not be afraid. I have no rival. The purpose of this... Oh, sorry. Uh, there's no other, uh, that is what he's trying to say, is that there's no other God or human power that can prevent God from doing what he has promised. And so he says, fear not. And so if God alone is God, then all other pretenders are idle. Now here is the real delusion, idolatry, which Israel needs to stop foolishly getting sucked into. Now, what follows is, I think, probably the most damning condemnation of idolatry in the Bible. 
Now, from God's perspective, uh, idolatry is always repulsive. It's not that there's no God. It's that people replace the true God with a delusion. Now, in one sense, idolatry is the fundamental sin because it it dethrones God and replaces him with something or someone else. And so the purpose of this passage is to demonstrate just how absurd idolatry really is. Look at verse 9. So all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. In other words, idolatry makes absolutely no sense. They bring absolutely no profit, and it's completely illogical to put any hope in them at all. And he's actually got two main points here. First, how can a human make a god that's worth worshipping and living for? And then second, how can you make a god out of earthly materials, the things that have already been created? In in verse 11, he says that the craftsmen are only human. And look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. See, the point is that idol makers are just mere creatures. They get hungry and thirsty. They grow tired and weak. They can't even make the wood that they fashion the idol out of. The best they can do is cut down the tree that the rain has nourished and grown. And if they are that weak and vulnerable, then how much more the idols that they make. But I think the most blistering criticism of both idol maker and idol worshipper here comes in verses 16 and 17. So in verse 14, which we read that, that the idol maker cuts down a tree, and then look at verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my god. See, the idolatry that so often seemed attractive to Israel is shown to be utterly ridiculous. I assume it's not that hard for us to recognise it. But the danger is for us to to think that, well, idolatry is not our problem. It might have been Israel's problem all those years ago, but it's not our problem. I mean, the Thai restaurant, perhaps even around the corner from my place, might have a shrine with an idol sitting at the back of their shop. Or my friend may have a statue of a Buddha in their garden. But I don't worship idols. But that, of course, is to miss the point, isn't it? that an idol is simply a God substitute. It's something that we give our devotion to or something we look to to give us something that actually only God can ultimately provide, things like security or worth or identity or comfort or hope. I mean, non-believers, just as much as believers, long for all those things. We all long for those things. But without God... They put their hope in things of this world that can never satisfy. They try to fashion their own gods. And our world has plenty of those. And as Christians swimming in our culture, we're very much in danger of adopting the idols of our world. In fact, almost anything can be an idol. 
Uh, it was the great reformer John Calvin who said, uh, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from our mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. See, whatever we treasure more than God, whatever drives our thoughts and actions, becomes an idol. And those idols dull our spiritual hearing and harden our hearts to the things of God. Uh, let me just give some examples. Uh, uh, maybe the issue for you is security. Uh, we know, don't we, that as Christians, everything we rely on, apart from Christ, is shaky at best. And jobs are lost, relationships fail, interest rates rise, unexpected health issues can leave us reeling. We cannot look to them for security, but Christ never fails. When we place our security in him, we remain strong, unshakable, no matter the chaos that we might encounter. He's able to carry us through whatever we face. Maybe uh, our idol is the approval of others, and so we put our desire to be liked above our relationship with God. Perhaps we're defensive or angry or we sulk when someone challenges us or perhaps we worry way too much what people think about us but if we value people's approval more than the gods the god that we know and love then we show where our true loyalties lie or maybe for you it's a relationship but no human can fill the empty places in our hearts in fact when we seek fulfillment from others and whether our romantic attachment or our, from our children or our spouses or our, our friends, especially if we kind of elevate those relationships above God, we end up feeling depleted, disappointed. See, only Jesus can meet our deepest needs to love and be loved. And so when we're trusting in him first and fully, we're free to enjoy our relationships with others in a healthy manner. Or maybe your idol is wealth. Or material possessions. I mean, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says that greed is idolatry. And so, for the greedy person, of course, enough is never enough. What is supposed to bring freedom and happiness so often brings misery and enslavement. But generosity is central to God's treatment of us. And generosity as Christians is key to our freedom from the trap of materialistic idolatry. Or maybe for you it's more about health and fitness. Uh, what do I think about more? My weight? The size of my biceps? That's a struggle for me. Uh, or my saviour? Uh, and I'm more, uh, and am I more happy to kind of clear my schedule for a gym workout or for Bible study? See, our schedules generally reveal where our greatest loves and loyalties lie. Are meeting with God and his people the non-negotiables in your schedule? Or does God get a look in only when there's, well, nothing better to do? Now, there are obviously other things like success and comfort, all kinds of things that, we can, that function as idols in our lives, if we let them. But perhaps one more that's worth mentioning because it has become so much the cultural sea that we swim in, and that's when we make an idol of self, of judging everything based on how it affects me or what benefit it is to me. After all, we've had it drilled into us that we have to look out for ourselves because, well, who else will? But this one, I think, is a great danger, not just for our, our personal lives, 
But it's also a great danger for church life. Instead of coming to serve and contribute to the good of others sacrificially, we start to sit in judgment of church life. We evaluate church based on how it makes me feel, what I get out of it. Does it meet my needs? We decide where to go to church based on the personal needs that I'm trying to fulfill. But that's a disastrous way to think about church. Rather, the Bible tells me that we belong to an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who gave his everything so that we might live. And in response, he asks that we willingly give ourselves to him. Of course, there's plenty more that could be said, isn't there? But just before we go and get to our final point and wrap up, I want to I channel David Jackman for a moment, uh, who opened a sermon on this particular passage uh, in a church in London, because I think what he said was helpful for us here as we kind of bring things together. He actually asked the congregation that he was speaking to there, he says, have you been visiting any favourite idol shrines this week? He says, I, I don't mean pagan temples, I mean those secret places in our minds and hearts where we go to find the acceptance and satisfaction that we tell ourselves we need. The places where we seek to renew our confidence and refresh our self-image, but independently of God. I guess many of us, if not all of us, have experienced the magnetism of those idol shrines over the days of this past week. Because idols are the most powerful God substitutes in our experience. And so therefore, they're the greatest challenge to our faith. Idols are what draw us away from God to what seems so much more tangible, so much more accessible, immediate, achievable. And it's a constant battle in the Christian life between God and our idols. And so when John says in his first letter of the New Testament, which we just read, the very last sentence he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And when God first spoke to Israel, the nation that he formed at Mount Sinai, having brought them out of Egypt by the redemption of the Passover, his first words to the whole nation were, you shall have no other gods besides me. But we construct our idols. We think we can control them, but in the end, they consume us. Our idols, idols make us blind to the reality as they are. They cannot deliver us. They cannot forgive us. They cannot save us. And it's a delusion to think that they can. See, our, our idols may look different, but they're just as worthless and just as dangerous as those in Isaiah's day. And so God calls us to remember and to return to the true God who saves. Now look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See, if the problem is Israel's sinful rebellion against God and their offensive attraction to idolatry, then the solution here, notice, is twofold. First, Israel is called to remember what God has said and done. They are to remember that God, what God has reminded them of in the previous chapters here. 
that they are God's nation, that he has raised them up, that they are his privileged servants, that God had predicted all these things and given evidence that he had done them because he alone is the sovereign and almighty God. And they need to remember the folly of idolatry. They need to remember God because he is their only hope of forgiveness and salvation. And secondly, Israel is called to return. Return to God, for he has redeemed them. He alone is the one who will not forget them. He alone will forgive them. He will blot out their sins. He alone is the one who can save them, because he alone is God. Only the only God is our hope, our security, our comfort, our satisfaction, our joy. And where do we see this glorious God today? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, we read this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, in all his awesome holiness, he is the humble sacrificial God that we see in Jesus. It's Jesus' glory, the glory of the one who takes sin away, who pays for sin, who offers forgiveness and true peace with God through what Jesus has done for us. He really is glorious beyond our imagination, which is why all creation here breaks out in song as they behold the one and only true and living God. And let's just, let me conclude with this last verse, verse 23. This is what, this is what the creation does as they see the salvation of God. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so prone to looking beyond you for the very things that only you can give. Please forgive us when we are tempted by the idols in our world, the things that we look to when we ought to be looking to you. Father, help us to be those who remember well all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, to be quick to return when we recognize that we have strayed. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.